Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 48. Last week, I covered the place Mahane Dan, literally the Camp of Dan, a city that played a pivotal role in the history of that tribe, at least for a few years. I also discussed what's known about the man Gershom, Moses' son, and mentioned in the Book of Judges. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with the next section of the text. And with that, let's get started. This next section is subtitled The Levite's Concubine, as found in Judges 19. It's an involved tale, so I'll begin with the paraphrased text, and it begins with an oft-repeated phrase from this part of the history. In those days, there was no king in Israel. During this time, a certain unnamed Levite was living in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, meaning west of the Jordan, north of Jerusalem, and slightly inland from the Mediterranean, also next to the Philistines and the territory formerly occupied by Dan. This Levite, probably a priest, took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but his concubine became angry with him. We're not told why she got mad. A footnote in some versions gives an alternate translation that she prostituted herself against him. I don't know exactly what that means, but it surely doesn't sound good. She was so angry that she left him, moving back in with her father in Bethlehem. Keep in mind that at this time, the Israelites didn't control all of the territory, including nearby Jerusalem as that city was still controlled by the Canaanite Jebusites. About four months would pass. After this, her husband set out after her to speak tenderly to her and bring her back. I'm going to pause here for a second and attempt to reconcile how she could be a concubine and his wife at the same time. The answer is relatively simple and somewhat contextual to that place and time. Essentially, she was of a lower social standing than her husband, likely because she wasn't an Israelite and instead a Canaanite and potentially a Jebusite. While they were married, as clearly indicated in the text, she was still an outsider, and the writer of Judges wanted to leave no doubt in the reader's mind. Unpausing. On the trip to Bethlehem, he brought with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. When the Levite finally got to his father-in-law's house, the young woman's father saw him and came with joy to meet him. His father-in-law made him stay, and he remained there three days. During this time, they ate and drank. Nothing is said about his wife during this several-day period. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning with the Levite preparing to leave. At this point, the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Fortify yourself with a bit of food, and after that you may go. So the two men sat and ate and drank together, and the young woman's father said to the man, Why not spend the night and enjoy yourself, making it a fourth night? When the man got up to go, his father-in-law kept urging him to spend the night there again. On the fifth day, he got up early in the morning to leave, and the young woman's father said, Fortify yourself and linger until the day declines. So the two of them ate. 
When the man, with his concubine, along with his servant, got up to leave, his father-in-law said to him, Look, the day has worn on until it is almost evening. Spend the night. See, the day has drawn to a close. Spend the night here and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can get up early in the morning for your journey and go home. By this time, the Levite was likely anxious to get back home. He decides to leave, eventually making his way to a place that's said to be opposite Jebus, with the text clarifying that this place is also known as Jerusalem. This clarification possibly indicates this part of the text was written at some point in the future, possibly after David was king and conquered the city. Then, we're reminded that the Levite had with him a couple of saddled donkeys. We're also told that his concubine was making the return trip with him. When they were near Jebus, later known as Jerusalem, the day was far spent, likely meaning sunset was upon them. And keep in mind that in that era, the day ended and the new day began when the sun went down. At this point, the servant speaks up, telling the Levite, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. The Levite, the servant's master, replied, We will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will continue to Jibeah. Yet another indication that Jerusalem had yet to be taken over by the Israelites. Levite continued, Come, let us try to reach one of these places and spend the night at Jibeah or Ramah. With Jibeah being another three miles, five kilometers to the north of Jebus, and Ramah two miles, four kilometers to the west. What's interesting is neither was near the other, likely meaning the Levite was willing to divert out of his way simply to avoid Jebus. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them at Jibeah, which was in Benjamin's territory. When there, they turned aside, went into the city, planning on spending the night protected by the city's walls. Once inside the walls, they went to the open square of the city, but no one took them in to spend the night. Keep in mind that hospitality, even to complete strangers, was a very important part of the culture of that time and place. Some short time later, during the evening, there was an old man coming from his work in the field probably wrapping up his agricultural work for the day outside of the city and coming home to sleep while protected by the city's walls. Then, we're given some background on the man who had been out tending to his fields. He was from the hill country of Ephraim and was residing in Jibea. Parenthetically, we're given a bit more information that all of this, what was the present time in the text, was occurring in the territory of the Benjaminites. This is important for a couple of reasons. First, that this man, along with the Levite traveler, were not in their home territories. Also, it gives context for all the events that were to follow. Finally, since the farmer was from Ephraim, which was where the Levite lived, at least they had that in common. Back in the story, when the old man looked up and saw the traveler and his entourage in the open square of the city, he asked, Where are you going, and where do you come from? The Levite answered, 
We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to my home. And I'm going to pause here for a second. An alternate translation of where he was going was, to the house of the Lord. Make of that what you will. To me, it likely had some sort of cultural context that's been lost in the passage of time and vocabulary. The Levite continues to tell the man that nobody has offered to take him in. They also have straw and fodder for the donkeys, with bread and wine for the three of them, all of this showing the man that hosting them would be of little costly burden. The old man replied, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. With that, he brought him into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. All was well. Or so they thought. While they were inside the man's house, said to be enjoying themselves, the men of Jibea surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. The writer pulled no punches, describing the town's men as being of a perverse lot. They said to the old man, Bring out the man who came into your house, so that we may have intercourse with him. The man went outside to them and addressed the issue, saying, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing, which seems well and good at least until he continued with his pleas. The man then offered up his own virgin daughter, along with the Levite's concubine, to the unruly mob, offering to bring them out of his house immediately. He continued, telling the mob to ravish them both and do whatever they want with them. Just leave the visitor alone. The mob was having none of it. With this, what appears to be the Levite seized his concubine and threw her outside, giving her over to the townsmen. Though the pronoun usage does allow for the possibility that it was the homeowner who threw her outside, but he's the less likely of the two. The text describes, in a bit of detail, which I'll avoid, if only to maintain my clean rating. Let's just say they all had their way with her, throughout the night, all the way until the morning. Only when dawn began to break did they let her go. As the sun finally made an appearance, the woman came and fell down at the door of the house where her husband was. At this point, the Levite got up, opened the door, and when he went out to go on his way, there was the woman, his concubine, lying at the threshold, with her hands on the threshold, to me, a little detail in this part of the story is particularly disturbing. After all of that, he was headed out of the city and back to his home. When he comes across his concubine, he tells her, Get up. We are going. But she did not answer. At this point in the story, I was inclined to believe she was still alive. He placed her on one of the donkeys and left, bound for his home in the hill country of Ephraim. When he got to his house, he took out a knife, and he cut her into twelve pieces, limb by limb. And he had those pieces sent throughout all the territory of Israel. Given this detail, I'm now of the opinion that she was dead before they left Jibea. With the packages, he sent a message, telling all the tribes, 
and since there were twelve, I'm presuming it included Benjamin. Thus shall you say to all the Israelites, Has such a thing ever happened since the day that the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. A footnote adds a detail that, And all who saw it said, Such a thing has not happened or been seen. It's worth pointing out that one of the ironies in the story is that the Levite wanted to avoid staying the night in Jebus, since they weren't Israelite and potentially would have been inhospitable. And this is what he got. And that's the end of Judges 19, but not the end of the story. Before continuing, though, I'll spend a little time on the place of Jibea. In the Old Testament, Jibea was the name of three mentioned places, one each in the territory allotted to Benjamin, Judah, and Ephraim. The name was relatively common since it simply translates to the word hill. This one in Judges is, of course, in Benjamin. And given this tell, it's also the most frequently mentioned of the three. Jabia is listed in some translations as Jabeath. It may be the same place as what's called Jibea of God. It would also, a couple of centuries later, would be the location of the first capital of the United Kingdom of Israel when Saul was king. He would reign from the city for about 22 years. This is why it's sometimes named as Jibea of Saul, potentially to avoid confusing it with the other places bearing the same name. Some biblical scholars posit that the name may have been applied to a district as well as to the town, since the neighboring town of Ramah is said to have been in Jibea. In the outside record, Jibea is mentioned as Kuba in the annals of Pharaoh Thutmose III, written between 1458 and 1438 BC, and found at the Amun Temple of Karnak in Egypt. This means this record was recorded at least a century, maybe longer, before the Judges period, evidencing that the town really did exist, and it was significant enough to make it into Egyptian records. Also, and according to Josephus, the 10th Roman legion camped near the city during its assault on Jerusalem in 70 AD. He placed it some 30 stadia north of Jerusalem helping with the modern identification. As a reminder, a stadia was just over 600 feet, 185 meters. Also, this record gives indication that the town was around well over a millennium. It's thought to be at the location of Tel El-Ful, in the northern portion of the modern Jerusalem. As for this name, it's literally the Arabic phrase for the Mound of Fava Beans. There are a couple of other suggested places, including the nearby Jabba, which is where biblical scholar Edward Robinson placed the city. But this location is now thought to hold the remains of another biblical city, in that case Giba. Back at Tel El-Ful, it was first excavated in 1968 by British royal engineer and archaeologist Charles Warren. William F. Albright led his first dig on the site between 1922 and 23, though he would not publish his findings until 1960. Several levels of ruins and artifacts were uncovered in these excavations, 
with the oldest thought to date to the Judges' period. Albright proposed that a fortress on the site dated to the Saul period. It appeared to have been repaired shortly later, presumably by either Saul or David. The fortress was roughly a rectangle with at least one corner tower. There may have been other such towers, as the construction seems to indicate, but positive identification of any eludes researchers. Fast-forwarding to Jibia in the second half of the 20th century. In the 1960s, King Hussein of Jordan began building his royal palace at Tel el-Ful, but construction was halted when the 1967 Six-Day War broke out. Unfortunately for his palatial plans, and as a result of their victory, Israel gained control of Jibia, along with the territory around it. Because of this, the palace was never finished, and now all that remains is the reinforced concrete frame of the building. And that's Jabia, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll continue with the intertribal war that followed the murder of the Levite's wife. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe, so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.